back in a series on our core values. A couple weeks ago, we had Rob and Jody Herman here uh, talking about their ministry in Indonesia, and they were talking about the relationships that they build with the native Christians and the non-Christians and how they try to um, show the love of Jesus by loving on the people. And we're going to continue talking about relationships today. That's our third core value. It says honesty and authenticity, and it's, it's really talking about the core of real relationships in the family of God. Um, some, a way to think about core values, I've, I've, we've talked about it a couple different ways, but one way to talk about core values is the things that you hold dearly, the things that are important enough in your life to make sacrifices for. Uh, I just got back last week. I wasn't here on Sunday. My wife and I were in Chicago. Uh, It was her birthday, and I took her to Chicago to see Hamilton, which was fantastic. And then we went to the Art Institute and saw a bunch of beautiful paintings. Um, And the truth is, that cost a lot of money. Like, we had to buy plane tickets and a hotel and food and the show tickets. All of those things were expensive. There's a lot of things I could have done with that money besides treat my wife to a birthday trip. But because I value my relationship with my wife, because I value her as a person, because I love her, I would rather spend that money on her and that trip and our time together than like buy a new video camera with it. And it's because she's a priority. So a core value is something that you find more valuable than something else. I'm doing a documentary at work about a company, um, just a company culture, and I interviewed a man who is um, who was diagnosed with diabetes and he had to miss a lot of work uh, to get treatment. And many of the other staff at his workplace donated their vacation time to him so that he could continue to make ends meet while he was missing work. Because to them, this man was more valuable than their opportunity to get paid to be off. And so core values dig deep into the things that are most important in our lives. Uh, There's this quote by C.S. Lewis that I love. Uh, He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. He's talking about money. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. And then he says, there ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And he's saying that when it comes to being generous as God's people, there should be things that we give up because it's more important for us to be generous. Because we want to give priority to the things that we find valuable. When I was... um, Younger, I think it was 17 years ago, maybe, uh, I was the assistant manager of a restaurant. I think I was making about $24,000 a year. And I was in love with this girl. And I thought I would ask her to marry me. 
And so I went down here to Clark's Jewelers, and uh, I picked out a lovely quarter-carat diamond and a white gold band, and I thought, man, she's going to really like this. But then I second-guessed myself, so I called up my mom, and I said, hey, come down to the jewelry store. Let me show you this ring. And so she did, and I showed her the ring that I'd picked out, and she said, if it's not a half-carat, what's the point? So I took all the money that I had for this quarter-carat ring, and, and the crazy thing is, is if you double the size of a diamond, the price does not double. It like quadruples. So then I took all my money and I put this half-carat diamond that I had been guilted into purchasing on layaway, and I worked for another three months before I could purchase it. But Joanna was valuable to me, and it was worth it to me to work that extra time to get this larger ring for her. And so that's what core values are like. They're, they're decisions that we make to put value on some things above other things. And so we're going to look at this story. It's called the story of the rich young ruler in Mark. And it's a story that... that it's about money, but we're not talking about money today. We're talking about relationships, and, and I hope this all makes sense towards the end, but it's going to start talking about money. And I think that's helpful because sometimes I think relationships seem a little weird, a little fuzzy and ethereal, but money's really concrete. We all understand money pretty well. So in verse 17, as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So I really like this story because I envision Jesus just smiling the whole way through here. This man runs up. He's He's excited about Jesus for some reason. For, for some reason, Jesus has attracted his attention. He wants to hear from this rabbi, what, what do I need to do to be made right with God? What do I need to do to be part of the kingdom? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, this isn't a place where Jesus is saying he is not God. We read all throughout the New Testament, he claims over and over and over again to be God. But he's just kind of messing with this guy. He's just kind of playing with him. He says, you know the commandments. Do all those things. But this ruler, he doesn't quite, quite get it because he goes, yeah, I've done all those things. I've, I've kept them all since I was little. And it says, looking at him, Jesus loved him. Jesus cares about this man. And he says, you lack one thing. Sell all the possessions that you have and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. See, Jesus recognized that this rich young ruler had a money problem. He had a problem with possessions. And Jesus is not calling everyone to give away all their money here. 
Although if he's calling you to give all the, away all your money, that's, that's fine. He might be. But it's not a command for everyone in the church to give away all their riches. Jesus recognizes that this man has what's called an idol. There's something in his life that is more important to him than his relationship with God. And Jesus puts the finger on it because he says, okay, give away all your money. But this man can't do it because money holds power over him. He can't follow after Jesus because he sees his riches as being more important, more valuable than the life that he's going to find in Christ. He wants to be part of the kingdom of God, but he wants his money more. And it says he's grieved, he's torn. It's not, he's not flippant. He doesn't go, Jesus, you're dumb. I'm not doing that. He's grieved about it because he wants these two things and he's torn between them. And it's a hard decision. And it's hard because Riches bring power and comfort and security and honor and influence. There are many things that riches give us. And we don't know what happens to this man. He, he went away grieving. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. And again, he said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says wealth makes it really hard to follow Jesus. Wealth represents self-sufficiency. If I have money, I don't need anything else. And FYI, everyone in this room is probably wealthier than this rich young ruler was. In America, we, we are incredibly blessed overall. And we see this. If, if, you have a, if you have a job, if you have a house, if you have a car, if you have income coming in, it's really easy to forget about God. You don't really need God if all of your needs are taken care of by your finances. Money gives us power and autonomy over our lives. And Jesus says it's really hard for people with money to get into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Then, and I think Jesus, again, is, is smiling when he says this because it's kind of funny. It, it makes me think of Jim Carrey in Dumb and Dumber. And he goes, so you're saying there's a chance. But no, there's not a chance. He's saying it's impossible. The eye of a needle is tiny and camels are huge. It doesn't work. You can't do it. But the disciples are astonished by this because in their minds, if you are wealthy, God is blessing you. If you have things, if you're rich, God loves you. If you're poor, if you're sick, if you've come under misfortune, God doesn't really care that much about you. And so for Jesus to say this rich person is far from the kingdom their minds are blown by this. They were even more astonished, saying, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. 
See, we can't fix the problem that we have. We have this problem in our lives. Our, our hearts are broken. They are crooked. They are misshapen. And we, they, we act out in that. And we do things wrong. We sin. We lie. We cheat. We, we lust. And then we create systems. And those systems are broken. And people are oppressed and, and harmed. And, and we have this whole world where things are broken and crooked. And, and we can't just throw money at it. Money doesn't fix it. We can't force our way into right standing with God with our abilities or our talents or our riches. See, there's, there's no amount of money that we can give God that say, here, let me into your kingdom. But Jesus says, even though it is impossible for us to earn our way into the kingdom of God, God offers it to us freely. He says, I don't need your money, but I want you. So we don't come to God with hands full of our own resources. We come to God with hands empty, and He accepts us anyway. Not because of who we are and what we bring, but because who He is and how He loves us. And so then this gets Peter thinking. I like Peter. He, he asks really good questions. So Peter began to tell him, look... We have left everything and followed you. Now, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for this. He doesn't say, don't be silly, Peter. He actually, I think he agrees with Peter. See, Peter has left everything to follow Jesus. Peter has, was, a, was a businessman. He, he owned a fishing business, and he left that. He left his income to follow Jesus. James and John... Peter's friends are also fishermen. They work for their dad, Zebedee. And it sounds like if when you read the Gospels, that Zebedee had a lot of boats and a lot of employees. And for James and John to leave their father, they were giving up their inheritance. They would have inherited the family business and been fairly wealthy as far as the, their uh, Galilean peasant status was concerned. And they left that. They, they left their families, at least temporarily, they left their status, any, any, um, any uh, privilege they had as citizens of their communities would have been forfeit because they were wandering around the countryside with this crazy rabbi. The disciples had given up a lot. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians in the first century and in chapter 10, verse 32, the author says, Remember the early days when after you had been enlightened, after you had become a Christian, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better an enduring possession. And what he says is, is he illustrates something that we have other historical records of is that when Jewish people became Christians, their communities disowned them. If you needed to go to the butcher and get meat and he, he knew that you were a Christian, he wouldn't sell it to you. If you worked for a carpenter as an assistant, he, you would get fired. You would be abused and taunted. You might be arrested. You'd get kicked out of church. And so, to become a Christian was to give up a lot. 
And Peter says this, we've given up, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions in eternal life in the age to come. And so this whole conversation starts around money. This rich young ruler has many possessions and, and he won't give them up. But then Peter says, hey, you know, we've given up things. We've given up stuff. And Jesus says, yeah, you have. But, but notice he doesn't focus on money. He says houses and he says fields, but he also says anyone who's given up brothers or sisters or mother or father or children for my sake and the sake of the gospel will receive a hundred times more now in this life and eternal life in the age to come. Most of the list that Jesus gives us here is about relationships, is about broken family relationships. And it's tempting for us to say, like, someday when Jesus returns, when the kingdom has fully come, we will get all these things back. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, no, we get these things back now at this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. And so, what we see here is that there is something about being a citizen of the kingdom of God that restores broken relationships. The family of God. We've talked about this before, but the number one metaphor for the church in the entire New Testament is family. We are a family. And Jesus is, he says that if you have become a follower of Jesus, if, you become, if you've left everything and followed me and you had a falling out with your parents, you have a whole room full of parents here. You've had a falling out with your children. You have a whole room full of children here. If, if you have friends or brothers or sisters who there's friction now because you've changed the way you live your life and you're a Christian, you have new friends and new brothers and new sisters, a hundredfold, Jesus says, in this new family. And we see this all over the Bible. I've got a couple um, passages. First Timothy chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy about how to lead the church, and he says in chapter 5, verse 1, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Treat the people around you like they're your own family. Romans 16 Verse 1, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. This is the woman who is given this letter 
to send to the Roman church. And he calls her sister. Down in verse 13 of that same chapter, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. What Paul is saying there is not that me and Rufus are brothers and we have the same mother. He's saying, Rufus's mother has been a mother to me. And then lastly, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, while he, Jesus, was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. We, we know from other gospels that they think he's overworked, that they think he's gone a little crazy with this Messiah thing, that he needs a break. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside standing, wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus is setting up this new family in his name called the church. And he says, if you've, if you've given up these relationships, if you've lost these relationships because you are going to follow me, don't worry because a hundredfold you'll get them back. And not, not in the, you know, in the future sometime, but right now. As you, as you become part of the family of God, you get these things back. And even houses and fields, like if you, if you become a Christian and you all of a sudden don't have a home, there should be other people in the body of Christ that have a home for you. If you become a Christian and you lose your job, there should be men and women in the church that say, hey, you can come work with me. But these relationships, this idea that we are a family of people that are here to look out for one another, that's, that's a lot bigger than just, I come to church on Sundays. And he says in verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. See, the kingdom of God, the church, becomes a place where traditional structures of honor are flipped upside down. The people that are outcast in our society are elevated here, and the people that society elevates are brought low. We see this in the book of James. And we have a hard time with this because we, we want we want to hold on to the values of our culture. And so we bring that into the church and, and we hear about like famous people that are Christians. And we get really excited about that because, you know, famous people are on our team now. It, now, now the gospel's legitimate because Chris Pratt's a Christian. Like the Lego guy, he loves Jesus. So, so now I can feel proud of my faith. That's silly. <laughs> I was reading a, a story this week about uh, Chris Pratt and Justin Bieber and 
I don't know, somebody else and how they're all part of these churches. And it's awesome. I love the fact that anyone is a Christian. But the honor, the privilege, the wealth that people who are famous in our world bring, it's, it's not accepted here. It doesn't matter here. The currency that they have well, it's not problem that they might have wealth, but it doesn't matter to the body. We're all family here. And conversely, when someone comes through these doors that has nothing, they are lifted up as equals. And they should be welcomed in to this family. So, Jesus is setting up this family of God. And I think he's serious about it. I think he, he wants us to take it seriously. And I think we have to think through what that means a little bit. And so here's a few thoughts I have about the quality of relationships that we should have in the family of God. And the first, the first thing that I think is... is, is Joyful is that if you are grieving lost relationships, if you've come into the family of God and you have lost, like your parents have disowned you or siblings won't talk to you or you're, you're, even just your circle of friends, they don't get you anymore and it doesn't make sense to hang out with them. Like you have a new family here. And that doesn't, that doesn't fix everything. It's like, don't be sad. You have a new family. Like, that's not the point. That's, you still should be able to grieve over lost relationships, but know that Jesus has provided others to come alongside you and to love you and to accept you where you are. God's family is a gift to you in that regard. If you are on the fringes of our society, if people don't understand you, if, if it's hard to make friends, if you feel neglected or abused or lonely, then the church is a place where you should receive honor. You should be able to come into this community and feel loved and respected and made an equal because we are a family and it should look different. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't always look that way. It doesn't always work out the way that Jesus wants it to. And that puts the burden on the rest of us to actually treat people with love and care and respect and, and honor. So if we were talking about money this morning, I would go back up to that C.S. Lewis quote where he says there ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because, of our because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And I think we can think about relationships the same way. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because the relationships we have with our family in Christ excludes them. There are some, sometimes on Thursday nights, I would love to go into my basement and watch Netflix for a few hours after a long day of work. 
But that would be awkward because we have community group on Thursday nights and like 12 people come over and if I was just in the basement all night, it wouldn't work. Sometimes I don't want to be around God's people. Not just God's people, all people. I just, I just want to be by, by myself. And yet, when we gather, it's always good. I always come away going, I'm glad we did this. I was built up. I had an opportunity to build up someone else. We shared a meal together. We opened God's word together. We prayed for one another. We had opportunities to say, hey, this is what's going on in my heart. This is what's going on in my life. This is what I'm struggling with. This is a way that God is blessing and doing amazing things. And even though sometimes I go like, yeah, I just, I, I just want to stay in the basement and watch TV. But it's always a good thing when I get together with God's people. There should be things that we should like to do and cannot do because the relationships we have with our family of God excludes them. We should be making these relationships a priority in our lives. So what are some practical ways that we can do this? I've got a couple listed here. First off, be brave enough to skip the small talk. Hey, how's it going? I'm fine. How was your week? It was great. Cool. <laughs> That's not very helpful. And see, there's, the problem with this is there's, there's two people that need to be brave here. The first person needs to be brave enough to say, you know, this week was rough. I got a health diagnosis that I'm afraid about. I might be losing my job. I, I don't know what we're going to do. And that's scary to open up to somebody the details of your life. But then the other person has to be able to not just go like, oh, um, I got to go get some coffee. <laughs> you have to have bravery to accept that and walk somebody through that and say, oh man, I am sorry. Can I, can I pray with you right now? Can we seek the Lord together? How can I help? And that brings me to number two is don't ask if there's a way that you can help. Just help. Like, I don't know what to do when people say, I had this happen last week. Hey, if there's anything you need, let me know. Like, I, I don't know what that is. Like, I have no idea. What are you, what are you even saying? Like, I need a million dollars. Do you have that? <laughs> like, I don't know. So, so-and-so just lost their job. Well, if you need anything, well, what do they need? They could probably use some food. You know, if somebody delivered meals to their house, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, well, I'll wait till they ask. Well, they're never going to ask, right? You're never going to ask. If you just all put together a meal train for me because I have no money right now, that'd be awesome. Nobody's going to do that. So if there's need, if we see that our brothers and sisters are hurting, just fix it. Just jump in and take care of it. Number three, have people over for dinner. Here's the crazy thing. I found out about this recently. Dinner happens every night. Did you know this? 
Like every night of the week, there's dinner. Hey, what are you doing tonight? I'm having dinner. Me too. What if we had dinner together? And th- this, is, this is a great way to get around small talk because if you have, a, have, if you have people over for dinner, you can't just sit there for two hours and talk about the weather. I mean, maybe one hour, but not two. You have to get beyond that, and it helps you grow in relationship with people. And if you're in one of our communities, you know this. We have a meal together, and then we sit and we talk about our weeks, and it, it deepens relationships. But we have a hard time with this because we are hung up on ourselves. If I have somebody over for dinner, we have to do like the best house cleaning we've ever done, and the floors have to be spotless, and, the, and all of this has to happen. And No, it doesn't, because we're family. If you come over to my house, there will be dishes in the sink. There's probably dishes in the sink at your house too. <laughs> I'm okay with it. We need to learn to be okay with it, to just invite people into our lives. And if you're lucky, you'll invite somebody over to your house and they will do your dishes for you. (laughs) Similarly, number four is invite people to stuff. This happened to me a couple weeks ago. I was building, I'm building a, a shelf in our bathroom and I needed some cedar and I was going to go to Windsor Plywood in Spokane to get some cedar. And I thought, man, I bet Larry would like to go. And then I went to Windsor Plywood and I got the cedar. And on Sunday I came and I said, you know, I thought about you, Larry. I thought you might want to go. And he goes, I totally would have (laughs) gone. And that would have been a lot more fun driving to Spokane with Larry than it would have by myself. And I thought about it, but I didn't do it. You're doing something. See if somebody wants to do it with you. And if they don't, like I always, I always, I I get so into my own head. Well, what if I ask and they're like offended because they think we're friends or we're not really friends and they're, they don't, but they don't, they don't want to go, but they don't want to say no because they don't want to offend me. Like just get over yourself. I need to get over myself and just, Hey, I'm doing this thing. You want to do it with me? Because we're family. And number five, everyone in this room is busy. And some of us need to stop it. If we were talking again about money, and you said, you know, I'd love to be generous, but I just don't have any extra money to spare. I can't, I can't be generous and give to the kingdom of God because I just don't. I have this and this and this. And I said, well, let's sit down and look at your budget and you've got all these things that you spend all your money on or you don't even know what you spend your money on. My advice would be you need to reprioritize your expenses and figure out how you can live a generous life. When it comes to relationships, the same thing applies. If you say, I don't have time to be generous in my relationships. I don't have time to get to know people in my church family. Some of us, we work too much. Some of us have too many hobbies. And some of us have made an idol out of our biological families. And this is a pretty insidious thing because I came from um, some of my influences growing up said that, that church 
and not church, but ministry, working for the Lord is the most important thing, and, and your family comes second. And thankfully, I have learned that that is not wise, that God has given me a family, and my family is a priority for my life. But in some cases, I think we've swung so far the other direction that we place so much emphasis on our biological family that we neglect our larger church family. If you, if you can't connect with God's people because you have kids, then I would encourage you to bring your kids. Allow your children to participate with you in developing relationships in God's family. Because the thing is, it's their family too. Like, I love it when some of you discipline my children. <laughs> hey, Nora, stop swinging on that. That's not okay. Get down from there. I love that because we're family. She, le- she My six-year-old, she learns. These are people that love me. I want them to experience that. I want people over in our home. I want to see how God's people interact with one another because I want my children to grow up learning that we're family. And if you find that your children or your marriage or your other biological relationships get in the way of the family of God, then I would suggest you might need to reprioritize some things. So this is this beautiful thing that Jesus does, and, and we, we lose sight of it sometimes because we, we feel like, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved. Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. I'm a Christian now. End of story. But that's such a small picture of what the gospel is. Jesus came to save you and I, yes, but he also came to inaugurate the kingdom of God to begin this new kind of people. And he says it's a family. And so these relationships built on the love of Christ should be a priority for us because it's the, it's the thing that Jesus has given us. It's the thing that Christ has made. We've been adopted, Paul says, into the family of God. And we haven't been adopted as only children. We've been adopted as one of many siblings. And we have each other as a gift. And so when we talk about core values, when we talk about honesty and authenticity, it's my hope that we are a people that are not just content with showing up on a, at an event and going through the motions of church, even if they're good motions, and they are, we should be singing together. We should be taking the Lord's Supper together. We should be sitting under the Word together. But this is just a small part of who we are as God's people. And we should be leaning in to what it means to be family. And that's not easy. Any of you who have family at all know that's not easy. (laughs) You don't want more family. 
but you get more family. But it's good. And you will be blessed, I will be blessed when we're both on the giving and the receiving end of God's family. And so we're going to um, we're going to take communion, and we're going to sing a little bit more. And one of the things I love about communion, and and we do a terrible job of this um, for a lot of reasons, but the communion meal didn't originally look like this. Like Jesus had a meal with his disciples, cups of drink and loaves of bread and lamb and herbs and. And the reason that was so powerful is because in the first century world, if you ate with someone, it was a very intimate act. You were both acknowledging that you needed nutrients to sustain you, and you were sharing those nutrients. They would take the loaf of bread and pull it apart and say, we're all being nourished by the same food. And while for mostly logistical reasons the cup and the bread have boiled down to this display. It's okay, because it's still symbolic of the fact that we are all nourished by the same spiritual food. The body of Jesus shed, or yeah, the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sins. And his promise of resurrection to bring us to new life to start this family, not to just save us as individuals, but to put us into this community. We take this meal together and we remember what he's done and what he's doing and how we are all connected as the family of God. And so I would encourage you to share in the communion meal as we sing. Let's pray. God, we are very easily drawn away by what our culture says is good. We are told that our individual needs, preferences, happiness, comfort is the most important thing. And your word paints a different picture. It it shows us that we are interdependent on one another, that we are here for one another, that we are obligated to one another. And God, for those of us today that are hurting, that need someone to turn to, to talk to, to love them, God, I just pray that that they would find a home here at Revelation Church. And for those of us that maybe I feel like a little too busy or like I don't have room for more relationships right now or I don't really like people that much, God, soften our hearts because you've loved us when we were unlovable. And you give us the power by your spirit to love one another. And God, I just pray that that is a big part of who we are. Grow that in us. 
God, give us the courage to share our hearts with each other. God, give us the courage to reach out and help when we see need. And give us the clarity to see where maybe our relationships are out of whack. Maybe we do spend too much time in front of the television. Maybe we do spend too much time alone. Maybe we've made our marriages or our children an idol. And we don't need to forsake those things, but we need to adjust them a little bit. God, I just pray that you would work on our hearts as individuals and collectively as this expression of your family in Coeur d'Alene. Pray that you'd continue to speak as we remember you in the bread and the cup and as we sing your praises, remind us of who you are and how you're working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.